Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin. I'm a senior editor with the Mises Institute. And with me, as always, is my co-host and associate editor, Tho Bishop, here at the Mises Institute. And Daniel Ellsberg, the heroic leaker who leaked information about the Vietnam War and the Johnson administration's lying about the Vietnam War, uh, died last week at the age of 92. And Ellsberg has long been a supporter of other leaks and whistleblowers and generally uncovering government secrets in general. And I thought this might be a good time to discuss the issue of government secrets and government secrecy and how it's really incompatible with any sort of self-government or freedom or uh, a, <laughs> it's incompatible certainly with a regime that uh, has some real accountability to the people because secrecy can be used uh, really and is used ad nauseum to uh, keep embarrassing information about the regime away from the public and to manipulate the public uh, just in a variety of ways. Now, of course, the government gets away from this, gets away with this because the country is filled with people who believe everything the government tells them and think that if the government says that while this information needs to be secret, people say, well, I guess it needs to be secret. Otherwise, we won't be safe. So we can't just, if we expose these secrets, the bad guys will come and get us. So always defer to what the government says in terms of what needs to be secret. And it's just embarrassing to see, in many cases, people who claim that they support Ellsberg and, and say he's a hero and then turn around and denounce people like Julian Assange or Chelsea Manning or uh, Snowden, um, all of whom have been supported by Ellsberg, by the way, and are not really um, distinguishable from him in terms of the public service that they have done. So we'll just look at some of those those issues and uh, look a little bit at uh, how secrecy in government has become just just really a mainstream thing that didn't used to be used nearly as much and is just really part and parcel of the 20th century security state. Uh, so, uh, though, how you doing? I'm not sure you were. Uh, <laughs> I mean, what did you think of Ellsberg's death? I mean, wh what is the thinking about guys like Ellsberg? Uh, in the, the circles among the people you usually talk to. Well, it's interesting. I think there's a lot more respect as conservatives have become, um, because, I mean, that's, that's who I hang out with mostly. Uh, spoiler alert there. Um, as you see the growing um, just this, you know, decay of institutional trust, I think that the way that some people even, you know, 2000, you know, just a, a decade ago would have seen someone like Ellsberg as being someone who undermined, you know, you, you have that very romantic image that a lot of conservatives still kind of projected about the Vietnam War and how, you know, it was the smelly hippies that undermined our ability to fight the commies abroad. Um, you know, you, you have that good guys versus bad guys mentality that still kind of exists in back in that, that golden age of America. Um, I think a lot of those folks even today um, have, have had, you know, really a, a profound shift in the way that they view the sanctity of these institutions. And so, you know, amongst, you know, 
now, now my, my more immediate friends that are big Mises fans, they, they were always very Ellsberg pilled. Um, but I, I think even with uh, uh, some of the, the more normie crowd, um, they would also be holding up their Radio Rothbard mugs and a toast for, for Ellsberg and his legacy, um, honoring his loss, uh, which they got at Mises.org slash Rothmug. Um, and, but the, the legacy here dynamic of, of Daniel Ellsberg, I think is interesting because Ellsberg himself was someone, you know, it, it's disappointing at times where you can see certain figures where they achieve a level of fame and respectability over time as a result of their actions in the past. And it turns them into something that is kind of the polar opposite of what made their mark on history. Um, you know, you kind of, they, they live long enough to see the villain that became captured by the various incentives that becoming a public figure can do to you. And I was reading, um, going into the show, a recent Politico article about El Ellsberg, um, you know, where he knew that he was on his final days. And he had a quote um, that I thought was, you know, very much reflects, um, you know, who, who he is and his, his view, you know, the, the way that he did not lose his perspective on, you know, what it means to truly be a whistleblower. Um, and within the article, it was asked, you know, what is your advice to future whistleblowers? And his response was, don't do it under any delusion that you'll have a high chance of ending up like Daniel Ellsberg. Um, and I, I think that really reflects the dynamic to which no matter how figures like that can be romanticized over time by establishment outlets in the act of the moment, you know, when you're actually standing up against the regime that these institutions are, you know, conspirators with, um, they will do everything they can to destroy you. And I, I think that he, you know, his ability to maintain that perspective throughout his life um, really is, is a testament to him as an individual, um, even, you know, as, as, it, which is as impressive as the courage it took, um, you know, when he was blowing the whistle on uh, the, the atrocities of uh, LBJ and the, the entire war machine apparatus. Yeah, the, uh, it's, it's interesting to note what a difference time can make, right? And, and a lot of the time, these people who used to be great dissidents, um, they became quite comfortable with the regime and became awful, uh, which I suppose probably has something to do with that old saying about, right, that you live long enough to become the villain. And uh, that, didn't, that wasn't too much of a problem uh, with Ellsberg. He didn't stop uh, supporting people who had done exactly what he had done. And that's why it's so infuriating, though, to see a lot of these people, journalists especially, who will tell you, oh, yeah, Ellsberg's great. Uh, but, oh, Julian Assange, what a horrible, horrible guy. Um, the difference, of course, is that <laughs> to support Ellsberg nowadays requires no iconoclasm, no courage, no independent thinking whatsoever, because it's just fashionable to do so now, especially among journalists. But among most of these mainstream journalists, uh, like at the New York Times, the New York Times actually helped track down this Texera guy who leaked some of these uh, recent documents from the Pentagon uh, from a few months ago. So that's what the New York Times does now, rather than publishing secrets, uh, unless it serves their ability to uh, make a quick buck by uh, claiming an exclusive on uh, some selectively released data that doesn't actually hurt the regime at all. 
uh, th they mostly try and discover leakers and turn them over to the FBI uh, to be prosecuted. So that's how much uh, these journalists love freedom. And so it was a very different situation in the past um, where, or rather it wasn't a very different situation in the past, where if you look at what the reaction was to Ellsberg's offer on this information, there was actually a lot of opposition uh, within the journalist class back then. And so to support Ellsberg in the old days did require actual independent thinking and courage. And a lot of journalists did not support him. And we can find uh, numerous cases in the research of how did they do report on um, the Pentagon Papers at the time? And you found all sorts of these old cigar-chomping newspaper editor types who hated Ellsberg and thought it was terrible that the New York Times was publishing this information. Of course, there were huge debates about it at the Times itself. It was hardly universal, uh, hardly gained universal approval among journalists. And so anyone who now claims that they, uh, <laughs> they love Ellsberg but hate Snowden or hate Assange is because those people are cowards. Uh, it, it requires actual courage um, to support modern leakers who do exactly the same thing as Ellsberg did. Um, but now they're doing it in the recent past. And so uh, that would require some actual opposition to the regime to support these new leakers. And so that's just, you know, that's what we should expect from this class of people. Um, they're just, uh, <laughs> once it's easy to support Ellsberg, then support him. But what did he do exactly? Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the basics of it, Basically, Ellsberg released what came to be known as the Pentagon Papers, or apparently were officially titled Report of the Office of the Secretary of Defense Vietnam Task Force. Um, this was a, a history of U.S. political and military involvement in Vietnam, all the way from the end of World War II up to the late 60s. And uh, Ellsberg released this uh, and managed to work with the New York Times to get it published. And it basically showed that the White House had been lying not just to the public, but to Congress. And why? Well, to make the administration look better, to get away with more war crimes uh, in Indochina. That was the whole point of it. Um, this is why government always supports secrets, is so they can get away with more and deceive the public and claim that uh, <laughs> reality isn't reality. And then they can make deals, of course, with uh, their supporters on the side or with foreign leaders. The British Empire used this a lot. A lot of uh, the lead up to World War I involved secret treaties and secret agreements with foreign governments. And they were secret because they were afraid that the British public wouldn't go along with them. And so they could then commit militarily to a variety of schemes and cons uh, that uh, the British government uh, itself thought was great, but which they knew the public would not support. And so that's generally what the tool is here, is we're hiding the truth because it lets us do what we want and it helps us keep the public in the dark. And this, uh, and at the same time, ridiculously, a lot of these same people claim to be in support of democracy when what they really want to do is remove uh, the ability of the voters to have any sort of informed Consent, And lest you think that it was just real easy for Ellsberg to do this, he was, of course, brought up on charges uh, under the Espionage Act, a BS Act, which should never have been law anyway, uh, but we can cover that another time. 
And just as uh, modern people who uh, release information that's embarrassing for the government today are brought up under the Espionage Act, so was Ellsberg. He was really just let go on a technicality because it turned out that the Nixon administration um, had violated a bunch of his rights and had uh, sneakily uh, used a bunch of illegal methods uh, to try and bring his case to court. And so he got off. But the Supreme Court didn't have the guts to really rule against the Espionage Act. They saw a chance to uh, let Ellsberg off on a technicality. So you can still use the Espionage Act to report uh, or to prosecute people for doing what Ellsberg did. Uh, and so really not much legal um, progress has been made uh, in that time. But when we look at the issue of secrecy, though, I mean, you could see why it would be incompatible with uh, ideas of 19th century style liberalism, which was to be extremely skeptical of the state, to call it to task, uh, to oppose it in every way. I mean, just imagine what the Jeffersonians would have thought of uh, the federal government keeping lots of secrets about various wars uh, <laughs> and using this for the specific reason of hoodwinking the voters. I, uh, the, there's a reason you didn't have, while you did have them in governments in Europe in the 19th century, especially places like Russia uh, or maybe the Austrian Empire where you had, well, like under Metternich, right? Uh, secret police and control of information. You didn't have anything like that in America. You didn't have uh, any sort of uh, sedition laws in addition to the very, very uh, limited powers to prosecute for treason under the Constitution. And so it's important to keep in mind that when the United States actually took liberalism, that is laissez-faire, free market liberalism, seriously, it didn't have the sort of government secrecy that it uh, created in the 20th century. So this is a new innovation, and that sort of thing was associated with the despotic regimes of uh, Central and Eastern Europe back in those times. And so it's uh, just, I guess, a sign of the times now that Americans just consider that to be you know, perfectly fine, just run-of-the-mill sorts of U.S. legislation now. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it now, now how, how a president Jefferson would have acted on, on some of this stuff is, it should be separated from the Jeffersonians as a, as a broader tradition. There, there was a little, some, some uh, difference once you're in power than when you are a, a philosopher on the sidelines. I know there were some, some issues with some of the, the documentation over Aaron Burr's uh, treason allegations um, during Jefferson's, Jefferson's administration, um, the second term, that are, that are interesting there. Um, but but you're, you're right. I mean, this is the, the, the degree to which the secrecy, secrecy state has grown um, another one of, of the, the uh, horrible consequences of the 20th century, um, the Espionage Act itself, a product of, um, I, I believe, kind of World War I-style uh, uh, ramp-up um, to, to some of the, the additions of the modern state. Um, and it's interesting as well that, you know, over time, while, you know, the, the left, um, which has been the side that has you know, that, that romanticized Ellsberg, um, you know, as a means of bludgeoning, you know, the Nixon uh, administration that was prosecuting him and all that, you, the way that that political dynamic has changed over time where, you know, the Obama administration, um, I believe, used the Espionage Act against journalists 
um, you know, more frequently than any administration prior to it. Um, you know, the ramping up with the security state under, under George W. Bush, you know, goes without saying there. Um, and, and of course, in the modern age, you can just imagine how progressive aligned tech companies would have treated the publication of the Pentagon Papers in the modern day, that the, that, that entire liberal sensibility within the modern era um, is very much against the idea that average citizens have the ability to properly understand uh, the significance of you know, the, the, the underlying machinations of the state. And I think this is also go, goes to why you see someone like you know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who in many ways sort of embodies, um, uh, for any other issues he might have, I, at the very least, he, he, he does a very good job of projecting an aura to him of that sort of romantic view, um, as flawed as it might be, um, you know, of, of that, that, that more you know, uh, you know, romantic notion of the left. And so when he goes out there and talks about the way that government manipulates, um, you know, whether it's studies on uh, you know, vaccines and medical issues, um, whether it is, uh, you know, the incentives at play with a variety of government actions, whether it is, you know, foreign policy and things like that. Um, the backlash that you see he, that, that he receives from the New York Times, from all of, you know, from uh, the, you know, very respectable universities and things like that. Again, all these institutions that revere, um, uh, you know, that, that, that promoted Ellsberg or the idea of Ellsberg um, you know, after it became okay to do so, um, you know, these are precisely the very institutions that will crack down on anyone that fills that role to this day. And the one interesting case of the more recent, more high-profile whistleblowers like Assange, um, you know, it is, is kind of the, the Manning situation, where Manning was someone who was universally um, condemned uh, you know, for leaking information um, and yet from the Obama administration was treated very differently at the end than Assange. And I think you could make an argument there that what they saw was a value from, from a different perspective, right? You know, once you had Bradley Manning become Chelsea Manning, the political calculation there changed and therefore as a projection of a different sort of agenda going forward um, from the political left you know, a, a whistleblower that had no value prior now had a different value as a as a public persona, um, as, as a projection there. Um, you know, which is not not Manning's fault, right? But again, the the way, the, the very cynical way that individuals within this situation can be utilized by the uh, political world, and and, and you could you could make the same argument, right? Trump was just as bad when it came to. Um, promoting Assange uh, during the 2016 campaign where he was say, saying negative things about Hillary Clinton, um, you know, where WikiLeaks was releasing information that was beneficial to Donald Trump's campaign, and yet it was the Trump administration that used the Espionage Act against Assange, um, you know, during, you know, when he was in power, too. The, the cynical use of these individual figures um, that can be highlighted or discarded uh, elevated or destroyed at ease um, goes to the the very manipulative aspect to which um, you know, the powers that be will utilize the you know the, w whether they want to promote um, the 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 
facade of transparency or really crack down on the necessity of secrecy for whatever their end is. Um, there's always a very manipulative, cynical dynamic to the way that political figures treat these individuals. Yes, uh, very much need to look at what are the domestic interest groups at play and uh, what, <laughs> where are the pressures to either prosecute or to not prosecute these people. And I think what you often find is that the, the people who speak up most for the leakers are the far left, right? The, the center left is the absolute just worst, uh, basically the Obama left. Um, the Hillary Clinton left, which loves war, loves the security state, uh, occasionally offers some uh, very tepid opposition uh, to whatever latest horrible torture or war is going on, and then as soon as they're in power, conveniently forget about it. And that seems to be just the uh, the usual way of doing things from that perspective. What's interesting is that I've got a quote here from 1992. Now, after the Cold War, there was a brief period where conservatives grew a spine uh, in terms of opposing the security state and uh, becoming rather anti-regime. Now that the Cold War was out of the way and they could actually, some of them, the more consistent ones, wanted to really concentrate on shrinking the powers of the U.S. government. And so they turned against the regime uh, now that they felt that the Soviets weren't a real threat. So we have, and Francis was one of those. So we got Sam Francis saying in 1992 that a, quote, a self-governing people generally abhors secrecy in government and rightly distrusts it. The only way, then, in which those intent upon the expansion of their power over the peoples can succeed is by diminishing the degree of self-government in their own society. They must persuade the self-governing people that there is too much self-government going around, that the people themselves simply are not smart enough or well-informed enough to deserve much say in such complicated matters as foreign policy. We hear this every time an American president intones that politics stops at the water's edge. And he goes on, of course, politics do not stop at the water's edge unless we as a people are willing to surrender a vast amount of control over what the government does in military, foreign, economic and intelligence affairs. The point he's unquote, the point he's trying to make here is that, look, if you're just willing uh, to just defer to whatever the government says needs to be done for the sake of presenting a uh, unified front to foreigners or foreign powers, which is what politicians always mean when they say politics stop at the water's edge. They want, well, we can't have any debates over foreign policy because that will embolden the boogeyman uh, in some foreign regime. So the White House says we're going to do this, we're going to have this war, and if you oppose it, well, then you support the, the bad guys, whether it be Saddam Hussein or Slobodan Milosevic or Putin or whatever. Right, you're a Putinist if you if you oppose the regime at all, and Samuel Francis here is saying well, the, the whole thing is just a load of BS. The whole thing is about getting, uh, allowing the government to assert more power over you and to keep going the myth that you're just too stupid and ignorant to even be allowed opinion, an opinion on these foreign policy matters. So that's a lot of what the ideology is behind these efforts to keep the public turning against these people who uh, leak uh, federal information and who actually try to 
uh, provide some accountability for the government by digging up some of their secrets. And so the ideology really just hasn't changed much at all. It's been the same back and forth. But one side is about protecting government power. The other side is about making the government look bad. Uh, and I think uh, I'd rather be on the latter side of that. Right. And this kind of goes into, you know, the, the, the Rothbardian narrative of the betrayal of, of the old right idea, the way that, um, you know, the rise of the, you know, modern uh, warfare state, um, you know, made questioning of foreign policy decisions, you know, basically parallel to, to a, a treasonous approach to, you know, to you know, this entire dynamic, um, you know, and, and you're, you're seeing this playing out now as well where the lack of trust within the rank and file of who fills these positions, you know, I, I think that you can look at things like, you know, the COVID requirements on vaccines. You can look at the way that there is increased scrutiny of um, social media behavior that the regime has perhaps, um, in some ways, you could argue from their perspective, wisened up to a certain extent um, by trying to make sure that they limit the possibilities for whistleblowers um, by creating hurdles to which that you, know, you don't have, you're trying to create an ideological homogen, homogenous workforce, essentially, when it comes to manning secret uh, sensitive positions in you know, the military, in the intelligence communities, and the like, because again, particularly given the, the, the increasingly polarized world there, if they cannot trust you to you know, salute the whatever flag of the day is being promoted, if they can't trust you to be all in on whatever the you know, major cause that we are supposed to care about as good citizens, then you will be viewed skeptic skeptically um, by the powers at B. And, you know, that dynamic is something that, you know, when, when you have that, um, when you consider the power and finances and, and everything that is built into the, the instruments of the modern state, it's terrifying. And you saw that again, as you mentioned, um, you know, when you have, you know, a, a relatively low ranking official in, in, you know, service member, um, you know, sharing documents, you know, because yeah, you know, po po poaching the you post, punching holes in the narrative, on you know the Ukraine-Russian war, right? You know the we, we'll, we'll never hear from that individual again, right? You know that that is not something that is going to be oh well, you know I'm glad that we're getting some truthful reporting on a conflict that has an incredible amount of of uh, you know lack of quality information a lot of censorship in terms of what is going on there, very poor reporting numbers and things like that. The idea that now, to be fair, releasing that sort of information on a gaming server, um, rather than taking the, the Snowden approach where you, you know, you, you go to someone like a Glenn Greenwald, Glenn Greenwald and get it out there. I, I, I can, I can, you know, out of, I can reasonably understand those two dimensions. They're fine. Um, you know, but you, you, that dynamic of them being, of, of the regime recognizing that simply um, that that ideological divide there is a threat to their own functioning. Um, I, th I think it's something that is, is a far more obvious issue now than a concern about, you know, are you a, you know, 
Vietnam sympathizer back in the day. Um, and I, I think that is, is steering to a certain extent some of the decisions that the regime at B makes in terms of the sort of individuals they fill these positions with in the modern, modern world. Well, this takes us to two methods that uh, modern opposition to leakers uh, try to use to continue their myth-making around, um, well, Ellsberg was all right, but these other leakers are terrible, and you can't leak anything now because it'll endanger our dear sacred troops. And so there's, there's two things that they do here. One is to pretend like everything that's classified or a secret information is uh, is really crucial, important information where lives are at stake. And that's just completely untrue. And we know that from some of the government's own reports, which uh, 10 years ago, uh, Obama had put together a task force to try and look at what what should we do with all this classified information. And his, his own committee concluded that, and this was quoted in The Guardian at the time, 10 years ago, uh, quote, the current classification system is fraught with many problems. It keeps too many secrets and keeps them too long. It is overly complex, and a culture persists that defaults to the avoidance of risk rather than its proper management. And that's what the report said. So there's just... They just keep everything secret because it's it's easy, it's convenient, and they just don't want the public to to uh, trouble them about it. So better to just to keep secret for decades rather than take this information and make it public, even uh, after you're redacting information or going through a bunch of precautions. And there was a good article from um, Truthout.org, uh, which um, was looking at some of the research on uh, the use of official secrets. And it looked at just how humongous uh, this, this cache of secrets is. And they, they note, the extent of information collected and stored at public expense, public expense, but withheld from the public is astonishing. Uh, the board's 20, this is that same board, the board's 2012 report identified one government agency that was classifying one petabyte of new data every 18 months, the equivalent of 20 million filing cabinets filled with text or 13.3 years of high definition video. Moreover, the cost of storing and safeguarding all this is high, roughly 11 billion in 2011, up from about 5 billion in 2000. One. And then it goes on to note how both the Bush administration and the Obama administration were enthusiastic about responding to freedom of information requests with just classifying everything. So the idea that, oh, yeah, they're classifying this because they want to protect the lives of uh, America's uh, patriots, uh, that really, really strains the boundaries of credibility. Uh, but that's a myth they rely on, is that everything that's classified is there to keep us safe. Uh, the truth is it's just information that the government doesn't even want to bother uh, allowing the public to see and dealing with, because that might occasionally uh, require the government to explain itself, and nobody in uh, the regime 
really wants to do that. And then the other method that they use is uh, to create this idea that past leakers were good leakers and modern leakers are bad leakers. And we touched on this a little bit a few minutes ago, but I mean, this is just a blatant thing that they try now is that, well, Ellsberg, when he released his information, um, he withheld some information and he only released the stuff that wouldn't be particularly damaging. He didn't want to hurt America's efforts in Vietnam too much. Um, but these other guys, these guys like Assange, they just release everything and that's just irresponsible. Well, Ellsberg himself has said that's completely untrue. He says if he withheld anything, it was to prevent him being accused of uh, withholding information uh, that uh, would be used to create the impression that he was only releasing information that made the government look bad. So he actually released as much as he could unless releasing some information would give the government uh, good reason to actually keep the war going. In one particular case where he was said, oh, he withheld 4,000 pages of stuff, and he was just trying to protect the government when he did that from uh, too much blowback uh, from the Vietnamese. He explained later that the reason for that is that he was afraid that releasing that information would give the federal government reason to not pursue peace talks with uh, the Vietnamese. So he was actually openly trying to pressure uh, the U.S. government, and uh, you, he was releasing information in such a way that he thought would be used to actually end the war and bring the U.S. government to uh, maximal account. So it wasn't any sort of uh, concern for protecting people who worked for the government. He was actually knowingly released names of CIA agents, at least one. Um, and yeah, he wasn't concerned with that sort of thing at all. So this is all just stuff they're making up to try and create this real difference between Ellsberg and modern leakers, uh, and then pile that on top of the idea that, oh, leakers today, they're leaking all this crucial information um, that keeps us safe from the terrorists. And these are all just uh, untrue distinctions that are being employed. And it should also, we should also note, and this is going to take in my next question for you, though, and um, it's, we should also always note that the federal government uses their own leakers to serve their own purposes. That they are they will release information classified information when they think it will make uh, the government look better or it will tarnish the government's enemies or when someone is trying to make the government look bad oh gee now they just happen to to leak some information uh, that that will help them in that political battle and that was that gets me wondering here though is the latest leaker on this is all talking about UFOs and aliens. And when I, and then immediately, as soon as I saw that information, I looked, I'm like, well, is this guy facing prosecution from the feds? Is this leaker being hunted down by the New York Times? No, it turns out he's not facing prison at all. So that's just good. Okay, so <laughs> why is this leaker not facing any prosecution and other leakers who release information that makes the feds look bad? It seems to me that I should be suspicious then of these other leakers who the government seems to be fine with. Uh, what do you think on that? Well, it was only a matter of time before he eventually got around to aliens on Radio Rothbard um, <laughs> in today's day and age. But you're right. I mean, we, any, any leaker that is being promoted and celebrated right from the get-go should be seen almost always with extreme skepticism. Um, in the case of the, you know, we, we, we have confiscated alien aircraft 
Um, it's David Grush, who is a, a former intelligence official um, who, as far as I can tell, is not living in fear. Um, he has not had to flee to Russia um, to continue his, <laughs> his, his existence. Um, you know, has been able to, to, to do interviews with, you know, it seems you know, in, any media outlet that wants to talk with him. Um, and of course, if you look at what he, his, his, his underlying mission, you know, his, his underlying goal, um, you know, you, you look at, you, you look at the people on the record now, you know, in theory, revealing things to the public that the government has kept secret for a very long time. And when you consider the, the, the size and scale of what this would really mean to society, um, you know, this is, this, this would be very, very high profile stuff. I mean, this, this is much more than, you know, the probably many ways than, than, um, you know, some, some numbers on the ground in a, in a war zone. Um, you know, the kind of the stated goal of those going on the record now breaking this security is, you know, I'm releasing this to the public because we really need a global solution to this ET problem. Um, this is a global issue. And I hope that by bringing this out to the public, we will have officials take seriously this so we can have greater global cooperation in dealing with this civilizational threat. And anytime you hear, you know, I'm, I'm releasing this information because we need more global co cooperation, which means we more uh, a global power, um, more tools at the state, uh, more resources allocated to the powers that be. Um, and if, in fact, if you look at the whole history of the entire um, alien research, re research program, you see that you know, this was kind of a pork barrel project pushed by Harry Reid uh, when he was the Senate Majority Leader. He always had a fascination with UFOs. They were giving a bunch of money to research Skywalker Ranch, which also claimed to have dino beavers um, and werewolves and all this sort of stuff. It's a very fascinating sort of rabbit hole on how, um, you know, just, just how, how, how far a uh, uh, government patronage grift can go. Wait, I, um, I legit, I, I, was this actually the Skywalker Ranch or was it the so-called yeah. Skinwalker Ranch? I have no idea what George Skinwalker, Lucas is Skinwalker, up to. Skinwalker Ranch, yeah, yeah, sorry, oh, Skinwalker yeah. Ranch. <laughs> I don't yeah, know if Lucas had some dino. weird thing going they, on. Yeah, no, they, 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 could, they, they could create some very great CGI um, <laughs> dino beavers at Skywalker Rice. But no, skin, yeah, yeah you're, you're correct there. Um, and so all of that should be seen skeptically. And if we can look at, we, we can also look at the way that, um, you know, those in major positions of power, the way that they are treated for violations here. Um, one that has a very nice, um, uh, you know, government PR uh, dynamic to it was that uh, good old Leon Panetta, um, when he was CIA director, um, allowed people from the, the Zero Dark Thirty film crew to attend classified um, uh, you know, top secret briefings on military issues. And this was perfectly okay because Zero Dark Thirty was promoting a regime narrative, even going so far as, you know, even though this was kind of an interesting administration sort of tension there, um, you know, suggesting that the research or that the information that led to killing Bin Laden came from a successful um, torturing um, dynamic on getting out that intel. Um, so if you're a Hollywood film producer and you are producing a film that is helpful to the regime's narrative, then you can get access to uh, top secret briefings that the rest of us cannot. Leon Panetta is retiring, I believe, in a very nice a uh, walnut, uh, a very nice firm right now, making a lot of money. Um, you know, good old uh, uh, General Petraeus 
um, you know, had classified documents um, that were mishandled with, I, I believe there was a romantic dynamic to that. Um, I haven't thought about David Petraeus in quite a while, um, but I know that that was a dynamic there where, again, you know, someone of that stature, um, the way that you handle documents is very different than if you're a low-ranking official um, that, that has that, you know, that, that, that leaves something out that they shouldn't have or, or inadvertently takes a photo on something they shouldn't have. And so the higher you are in a position of power, um, you will be protected from these same rules. Um, and again, the, the use of the Espionage Act to crack down on whistleblowers, um, you get people that served you know, years in jail um, for doing things that were as or less serious than the people I just mentioned. Um, you know, again, it just kind of goes to the dynamic where anyone that, if, if you are on the regime's team, if you're doing their bidding, um, then releasing information will not be used against you. Um, you, you can even see this play out now in kind of the, the, the double standard um, with um, General Mark Miley, who um, seems to have been a source for um, leaking certain information from classified documents um, that was used kind of in a framework to make Trump look bad. And then Trump doing more or less the same thing. Um, and, uh, you know, Miley, the, the, sor the, you know, the, the allegation is that th that source was used for a book that was Trump bad. Trump did something similar in a book that makes Trump look good. Um, Trump facing you know, a very serious uh, criminal charge. Mark Miley is still you know, very, you know, it's facing no ramifications for those actions there. And so this distinction there, um, now again, if you, if you want to say that you know, Trump gets what he deserves because of the use of the Espionage Act and Assange, it's a separate issue there. But again, regime likes Miley, regime doesn't like Trump, the difference there in the way they were acted. And so the, the, going back to the alien issue, um, you know, the, the, the willingness of mainstream outlets to elevate and um, give platform to these very heroic, uh, you know, alien experts is something that uh, should, should definitely be a red flag, if nothing else, when we uh, evaluate that news cycle. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode of Radio Rothbard. Thank you, though, for joining me this week. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. So we'll see you next time. <laughs>